You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 14th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. Hello, this is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, constitutional reforms in Russia mean Vladimir Putin might reasonably expect 15-plus more years as president. My guests Mary Dijewski and Simon Brook will discuss that and the day's other news, including things looking a bit ropey for Bernie Sanders, but is the Democratic nomination a sure thing? And with the UK's local elections postponed for a year, we'll ask about coronavirus's impact on democracy, as well as having a look at today's paper. That's all coming up with me, Georgina Godwin, here on Monocle's House View. And welcome to the show. Well, today I am joined by the former foreign correspondent, Mary Dijewski, and Simon Brook, who's a journalist and a communications consultant. Welcome to you both. Thank you for coming in. Uh, let's start in Russia. Mary, of course, you are a Russia expert. You lived there for a long time. I did, yes. I was a correspondent there for three years through the collapse of communism, and I go quite regularly. And you speak Russian? I speak Russian. Yeah. Do you speak Russian, Simon? Uh, yet, I think it's probably the limit of my <laughs> Russian, actually, I have to say. That's good. Right. That's a start. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, this week, of course, the whole world has been distracted by coronavirus. Uh, but whilst that's been going on, President Vladimir Putin's pushed through constitutional reforms that could see him hold on to power until 2036. Uh, Mary, the, the Kremlin's wryly observed that he hasn't said he'll run again in 2024. I mean, do we buy that? Um, personally, actually, I do buy that. Um, because I've heard Putin talk about um, when he might retire and what he might do. Um, And at that point, he said, you know, I'm not going to go racing around the world. I'm not going to hang on to power. Um, I just want to go out to my um, dacha in the countryside and um, dig my vegetable garden. Um, And while a lot of people will scorn that, um, I don't think that that is necessarily completely wrong. Um, But I do think that it's very interesting that um, suddenly um, it appears that the law and the constitution in Russia may be changed to, in principle, allow the possibility um, that Putin could have yet another term after 2024. Hmm. Now, all this began um, back a month or so ago when Putin gave his State of the Nation address and set out some proposals for changing the constitution, um, one of which um, was talking about altering the um, relationship between parliament and the executive, actually to the advantage um, of parliament and he was talking in terms of um, altering certain organs of the state that some saw as giving him an opportunity to stay on something called the state council was going to be boosted um, what was very interesting was the um, the response to that, both in Russia and abroad, which was that basically everybody divided, including in the Western world, about how to interpret this. So all the people who thought that Putin was an absolutely terrible thing um, decided that all this was 
geared towards him staying in power forever. Mm. And other people like me said, no, actually, there's a different way of reading this. And this is about stabilizing the system so that the system can continue after Putin, which actually... Um, may smooth over a time that could actually be quite destabilizing. Um, and despite the revelations of the past week, which suggests that the um, the clock, the constitutional clock could be reset with the changes to allow, yes, we can say, you know, a president may serve only two terms or only two consecutive terms, but all that's in the past, we start counting again when the constitutional amendments come into effect. And that is the reason why people are saying that Putin's opened the way for um, for him to serve not just one more term, but two more terms. Mm, mm. What does it mean for the opposition, Simon? I mean, how have they reacted to this? Well, uh, opposition has been quite muted um, because mainly of uh, President Putin's iron grip on the country and on certainly the television. I think what we're seeing here in, in terms of political campaigning is a divide though um, a lot of the media are pointing out that obviously he still has as I say that grip on television and the main broadcast outlets are very supportive of him but of course he can't have complete control over social media and so what we're seeing is um, more and more of the opposition outlets using Twitter, Facebook, Instagram um, you know the, the modern campaigning tools if you like um, to attack him and it's interesting as well just looking at polling that shows Approval ratings for President Putin have really halved since 2018 when he last stood for election. So I think uh, there's a really interesting point, Mary. I have to say to me, when I saw this um, move by him, to me, I thought that was a almost an admission of weakness. I think he's really worried about his grip on power. And that's why he needs to uh, do something about it now. Of course, the real challenge will also be for the West um, with the forthcoming commemorations in Moscow of the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Uh, Le Monde pointing out earlier this week that President Macron will have to go there and stand shoulder to shoulder uh, with Mr Putin. And obviously, Mr Putin is already making a big thing of the fact that, um, you know, the, the incredible role that Russia played in the Second World War. So associated. Russian power, Russian uh, sacrifice, what it's done for the world with his current uh, political manoeuvrings. Mm. Mary, do you think that he has made succession plans? Um, it's very hard to see any definite succession plans. Um, certainly to identify particular individuals um, in his lineup um, who might become um, his successor is very difficult to see because most of the people around, immediately around him are either his contemporaries or a bit older than he is. Um, so you're possibly looking to um, a very interesting and very important change of generation um, with the next um, the next president, if indeed there is a, a new president after 2024. Mm. Um, but I would also say, I mean, I think there's another interesting point about um, the succession plans now and the possible amendments to the constitution, which is that Putin... Um, the last time um, there was a question of changes in power, which was 2008, um, when Putin abided by the letter of the constitution and stepped back to be prime minister and a new president took over and they swapped jobs four years later, um, that then 
um, Putin, I think, suddenly realized the dangers of um, looking as though he was preparing for someone else to come to power, not for him personally, but in the lineup generally, that um, people around him started jockeying for the succession and almost openly campaigning. And it set a very, um, a very uncertain mood. And it may be that in um, at least putting out there the suggestion that there may be no succession in 2024, that this is designed actually to keep to, to, to keep people guessing so that that sort of jockeying doesn't break out, at least not yet. Mm. Do you think that cynically he's put this out under the cover of Corona? Well, yeah, exactly. There hasn't been a lot of coverage of uh, coronavirus in Russia. But of course, the problem for Russia as well is that it doesn't have a very robust health service, does it? So it's one of those countries um, which will probably suffer because it doesn't have the an equivalent of the British NHS or something like that. But uh, normally, um, you know, strong dictators, strong men, in this case, dictators, can operate quite well in, in situations like this. You think of what happened in China uh, and the way they um, use the incredible power of the party, of the state, to lock down whole areas. And uh, that seems to have worked for them, the kind of thing that we couldn't do in the West. The problem is, of course, with Russia, that it's, it's riddled with corruption, isn't it? So even if the top says we need to do this... Um, doesn't mean that it will happen on the ground. And I think, I think there's, to, yeah. there's also a very interesting question about how biddable the Russian population actually is compared with the Chinese population. The internet in Russia is free. Um, there is a huge amount of social media. And while, you know, you could look at the geography of Russia and you could say that social distancing actually should be much, much easier in Russia <laughs> than almost anywhere Through else. In Siberia or something. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I think that, um, you know, the idea that you could actually treat Russians in the way that um, the population of Wuhan has been treated in China, mm. I think that's pushing it even for Putin, even today. Is there a sort of element of Russian fatalism as well? Whenever I've been to Russia or talked to Russians, there's an element, one one of one Russian was saying to me, actually one of the reasons why we don't wear a seatbelt is if you're going to have a crash and die, it's going to happen anyway. And I just wonder if there's a sort of Russia that has suffered so much, there's an element of, well, we'll just wait and see what happens. No, I think that's an entirely fair point. And um, I think also Russians are, um, because the, their trust in success Excessive administrations, you know, when you look, as you say, you know, what everybody's been through the last 20, 30, 40 years, um, the trust in what they're told officially is really not very great. Um, so enforcing regulations, not just because of corruption, but because of attitudes, um, is going to be very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, what we're told uh, everywhere, not just in Russia, is sometimes in doubt. Uh, Donald Trump has been saying some uh, things in America that extraordinary speech. I don't know if you watched his address from the Oval Office in which uh, it was, it, it's been called the most expensive speech in history because, of course, right after that, the bottom just fell out of the market from, from what he had said. Uh, and uh, coronavirus, which is what he was talking about, is, of course, affecting elections and the democratic process, really, across the world. Here in Britain, we've delayed uh, local elections by a year, which is extraordinary. It is absolutely extraordinary. Mm, unprecedented, and I, think, I think, really. Without might be. And also, you know, because when the Electoral Commission first proposed this yesterday morning, it appeared that Downing Street was actually against it. And they said, no, they were rejecting the advice. I mean, five hours later, mm. it had been accepted. And that, I mean, just to give 
everybody an extra year in office. What a gift (laughs) if you're a politician. But I mean, also, how does it change things? Because we know that largely older people who are most engaged at the ballot are also most at risk. You know, I mean, so so what? Firstly, in a year's time, will there be many fewer elderly people? Uh, And is postponing obviously the the responsible thing to do because those those people are not going to come out and hopefully then not get sick? Well, if you, I mean, if we go back to the United States for a moment, I mean, look at the two candidates who are likely to be contesting the presidency. I mean, both of them over 70. Um, Biden in his late 70s. I mean, it's, um, I think it's probably the oldest lineup of presidential candidates there's ever been in the United mm. States at this time. Well, let's have a look at, at, at Biden and, and Bernie because um, it's a relatively narrow gap, really. Uh, I mean, would you say, Simon, there's still everything to play for? I think so. Yes, certainly. It is. It is remarkable, isn't it, to see Joe Biden's comeback. Um, it's uh, his campaign has really gathered pace. He's got a new campaign manager, so that's given it uh, um, a fresh blood. Um, I think what's really interesting is the question is. Do the Bernie Sanders supporters hate Joe Biden more than they hate Donald Trump? Mm. And I think the problem is a lot of them do, don't they? They regard Joe Biden as even more of a sort of Washington insider, the political establishment, um, than than Donald Trump is. So uh, the big question, I suppose, also for Bernie Sanders is, does he want to carry on? Um, The danger is that he probably won't get the nomination. All he will do will just be seen as disloyal to the Democrat Party Democratic Party attacking um, their candidate. Um, And also, the other question is, again, coming back to this business of of cancelling events and stuff, we're in new waters here politically because we can't have those big rallies. And Bernie Sanders, like Donald Trump, thrived on the big election rallies, didn't he? You know, the the massive crowds, the cheering, whatever, which would have been great for him. So presumably those aren't going to happen anymore, certainly not until the last stages of the election campaign as we come up to election day in November. Joe Biden, on the other hand, is not a great um, public performer. He uh, He's sort of stilted. Um, he doesn't have the passion or the power or whatever. He's much better uh, in a more intimate surrounding. So, in fact, if we are going to see the end of these rallies and limited exposure um, of the the political candidates to the voters in that way, then actually that could uh, benefit jo- uh, Joe Biden even more. Mm. I mean, you talk about the the, the hatred of, of some voters for, for one or other candidate. How responsible are individual candidates for the ongoing toxicity and the, and the polarisation in political discourse? Well, I suppose I'm a bit more relaxed about polarisation in political discourse than a lot of people. I tend to think that this is the stuff of politics yeah. and it's the stuff of modern politics. Um, and where you've now got social media, this is amplified many times over. And really, I'm not too worried about that particular aspect. Um, I do think, I mean, I'm a little bit more pessimistic than Simon is about um, Bernie Sanders' current chances. I think it's basically all over for him. Um, but whether Biden can take over um, the votes of Sanders, either um, in the rest of the primary season or in the election proper I think that is a that's a really big question Um, but as everywhere else um, coronavirus is changing the whole dynamics of the American election Mm. already I mean I think that that's one of the reasons why Biden is uh, one of the reasons why Biden is suddenly doing so well that um, the attraction the appeal of somebody who looks sort of cool and sensitive uh, sensible 
been there in in power during crises. Rather than somebody who looks like a firebrand and you're not quite sure. Um, I think that's something that's probably in Joe Biden's favour at the moment. But then, of course, the big question is whether it's a disadvantage to Donald Trump, because you would expect that the, as it were, the um, the advantages of incumbency would come in at this sort of time, that somebody can go up to the microphone with the backdrop of the White House and look authoritative. But when we've seen Donald Trump on those occasions in the last week or so, it's been almost the opposite. Um, is this going to prove a huge disadvantage to Donald Trump through the campaign? And the further question is, because of the American health system, um, what? how can they deal with this? Without, without socialised medicine, what does that mean for the virus in the United States? I think it's a very, very big question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Simon, again, back to, to Trump and his, his looking or not looking presidential. Do you think that one positive that may come, well, depending on your political standpoint, of course, but one positive that may come out of, uh, of this pandemic is that Trump's base uh, are actually seeing him for what he is, that he is, in fact, losing support. Well, it'll be interesting to see, won't it? Um, obviously, he's not. This is the kind of crisis uh, situation where you need an experienced, level-headed politician. He's neither of those things, certainly. And he certainly has stumbled. I mean, he's already tried to turn it to his advantage with his base by describing this as a foreign virus. You know, mm. it's them against us, isn't it? So, obviously, he's hoping to, to uh, for a payoff there. The problem is, is that the Republic, there is nobody else in the Republican Party. He is, he will almost certainly be their candidate. Meanwhile, we've seen the Democrats fighting amongst each other for the last six months. And I'm with you, Mary. I like a vigorous political debate. But if you see the leaders of a political party fighting amongst each other, it doesn't look great. Um, and so, I think the assuming that Biden does um, get the the nomination, then obviously that's a huge boost for the Democrats. Again, whether uh, Bernie Sanders supporters uh, support him. But I think, no, I mean, I'm afraid, I think, to be honest, Georgina, I think people who've backed Trump will carry on backing him because there is no alternative as far as they're concerned. And the more he's attacked by the media, perhaps for his handling of this incident, the more they're going to believe that he really is their man, their saviour. I think you may be right. Um, but I also think there's a, there's, a, there's another element to this, which is so far in the campaign, insofar as the presidential proper as opposed to the primary campaign has, is being waged. Um, we've seen Donald Trump campaigning on the economy and he's saying, you know, the stock market is the highest it's ever been, um, the small business is this and the jobs situation is wonderful, etc, etc. Well, suddenly, in a week, it's not. Mm. Um, the stock market has fallen catastrophically. Um, it's much harder for Donald Trump to campaign on that aspect of his presidency. So I'm not sure. Mm. Now, coronavirus, of course, across all of the newspapers. Um, The imagery is really interesting, isn't it? Uh, Mary, let's have a look at at some of these these front pages and and some of the pictures um, that that you had there. Uh, um, I'm just having a look here at... um, 
What was the main one we were we were looking at? The German that? newspapers. I, I was looking at some of the German somber, newspapers, but yeah. um, Le Monde, for instance, if we look at um, French paper Le Monde for a start, um, you have a very solemn picture of Macron on the front page. Mm. Um, across the German papers, what struck me was the solemnity of it. Um, the um, Die Welt, which is quite a sort of centre-right paper, um, has... Um, um, Merkel um, again looking lo- looking very solemn but in quite um, in, in very subdued tones and an inside page I think page three or page five of um, the Süddeutsche Zeitung has this absolutely atmospheric picture which looks like sort of permanent dusk with Merkel and uh, the German leadership hierarchy I mean everything projects this image of pessimism, um, solemnity, and a degree of responsibility. But what also struck me in those photos, um, that Merkel actually looks, looks quite small. She doesn't look this sort of towering authoritative mm-hmm. figure. And that may be partly to do with the current sort of disarray of German politics generally, especially in her party. Um, nonetheless, it gives this impression of something which is sort of bigger than any individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Guardian has a huge picture of, of the actual virus itself, the coronavirus. And you can see those little sort of... Uh, crown-like protuberances, if you like. Uh, The FT Weekend uh, has a picture of Cheltenham races, uh, and it says, of course, that this uh, is set to be one of the last big gatherings uh, before restrictions come into place. Johnson, U-turns on virus fight with steps to ban mass events is is the headline. And I must say, being at, at events the last couple of nights, it's felt to me a little bit like um, the Duchess of Richmond's ball on the eve of Waterloo. I want Byron to come and write something about it because it does feel a little bit like that, doesn't it? It does. It's interesting. I mean, I, you know, just going to sort of art galleries and things the last few days. I went to the gym yesterday and I've never seen it so quiet. I just, I couldn't decide whether I was sort of proud of being there like I'm getting taking advantage of the fact that nobody else is there and all the machines and everything was available or whether I'm just being completely stupid I'm not sure but it's interesting that a psychological effect and the Guardian has an interesting story here um, Professor Susan Mitchie who is director of the Centre for Behaviour Change at uh, University College London and just looking at the effect that um, well two things really one is coronavirus fatigue I mean we're all excited and worried and fascinated horrified obsessed with it now but in a few weeks time will we actually got a little bit bored of it a question for the news media as well does that fall down the uh, the uh, features queue and stuff um, and the second point she makes is the fact that self-isolation actually we're all okay so you're self-isolated few physically you might be safe you're not going to get the virus necessarily but what's the psychological effect and i think that's something that governments sorry to be a bit of a downer on this but i think that's something that governments are going to have to look at as well how we you know we're already it's said we're a more atomized society aren't we 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 get takeaways and eat them at home we're less likely to join clubs and societies is this going to sort of boost that more is is this going to make that situation worse or are we going to have to do something post-coronavirus to to really reverse it i mean i, I sort of tend to fall between the two things half of me thinks you know, wouldn't it be great if everybody 
once a year had a sort of two, three or four week reading break um, where you wouldn't be disturbed by anybody and you could uh, you could actually do all the things that you were planning to do in the, in, in, in the quiet of your own home. And the other part of me thinks, uh, won't it be fantastic when it's all over and can't we have a sort of gigantic street party with everybody Brilliant coming out idea. and scenes sort of you know scenes sort of like the the, the, the end of the second world the war all over the world <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. champagne corks popping yeah extraordinary <laughs> extraordinary times uh, there are other stories around uh, not many <laughs> but there are some uh, let's have a look at the times because um there's a, a whole piece here on, on unexplained wealth orders Yes, um, these are the um, orders brought in um, by, in fact, it was Theresa May uh, introduced them, I think, when she was Home Secretary, certainly under her uh, under her auspices anyway. Uh, these allow um, the national crime agencies and investigators to just basically look at, essentially, it's around London property, really. If you buy a, a mansion on Billionaires Row in, in Hampstead or Kensington, uh, asking the question, where does this money come from? And yes, the the Times has a report here um, looking at uh, a a British solicitor who uh, is working closely, it says, with um, uh, Kazakhstan's uh, former ruling family and, according to the Times, um, uh, helping them to launder millions of pounds of money extorted through what it quotes as old-school post-Soviet raids involving murder. Um, Obviously, we haven't... There's no... Uh, you know, I imagine uh, the, the solicitor in question would uh, um, would refute the allegations, but um, it's really looking at, this is one of the interesting examples of where these unexpected wealth orders are actually being used practically to um, just try and challenge the impression that London in particular is one of the money laundering capitals of the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel about these things that the, the British government has been incredibly slow and incredibly timid um, to crack down on the use of London and the property market in particular, basically for massive money laundering. Um, and the number of firms that have been set up specifically with the, with, with the purpose of basically helping um, mostly foreign nationals um, to use their money um, in particularly advantageous ways. Um, the people who help the, uh, the, the the people who may be subject to unexplained wealth orders. Um, there's been almost nothing to tackle this, which is one reason why the story in the Times is so interesting mm. because it's a rare occasion where one of these companies is actually being um, identified. Mm. Now, one of the things that this picks up on is uh, a mansion uh, that uh, is owned uh, by somebody right in the centre of this. It's on um, Bishop's Avenue in Hampstead and there's a little sidebar here about billionaires row which is what it's known as uh, and all sorts of uh, enormously wealthy people live there it's it's a mile long uh, and um, they say that um, it's estimated that about a third of the mansions valued at about 350 million pounds are empty uh, and some have been for a quarter of a century and it's funny you drive down that road it's it's not far from where I live and you drive down there and it does feel completely soulless and some of the houses are really horrible <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great 
way to invest your money and why would you do it? I think this is a bigger, you're absolutely right, I think this is a bigger problem as well. I remember doing a piece about it quite a few years ago now, just looking at what's happening in places like Belgravia, which of course terribly smart or whatever, but these used to be communities. You know, yeah. they used to be aging dowagers, um, other, you know, young entrepreneurs or whatever, but they used to have restaurants and post offices and uh, people would live there. But now when I was talking to the, one of the residents, she was making the point that if you drive down there in the evening or so, if a car goes past, people will look out the window. Mm. It's a car. You look along the streets, every window is is dark because nobody lives there. They're either just investment vehicles these days or they're bought by foreign owners who might come to London twice a two weeks in the year or something. So for London and for other cities, I think this makes the point, how do we make sure that properties in the most desirable, expensive areas are not just investments, especially not for dodgy money? Mm, and I mean, with our homelessness problem, it's criminal, really. There's um, an enterprising Russian exile um, who runs what, what are called kleptocracy tours of London. Um, he charters a, um, charters a coach um, and takes people around identifying um, all sorts of um, mansions and apartment blocks and things where... Um, he says there is evidence that they're owned and have been bought with suspect money. Um, and obviously, you know, in one way, this is, a, you know, is making propaganda points. But in another way, it is, a, it is a form of transparency that everybody ought to know yeah. who owns these places. And very often, it's extremely difficult to find out who owns them because they're owned through series of shell companies um, in um, tax haven. Um, and they're not identified. I mean, David Cameron sort of rather half-heartedly, to my mind, introduced some sort of um, measures to try and ensure that um, companies and um, ownership of property um, actually had to, ha that there had to be an identifiable owner. But all this seems to have, it, it, it was put on ice, it was delayed, and I don't think it's even come in in any effective form still. No. Uh, Mary, thank you so much. Mary Dijewski, thank Thank you, Simon Brook. Uh, uh, to both of you, thanks Thank for, you. for making the effort to come in. <laughs> uh, and do stay well. Our supervising producer was Augustine Racciolari, our researcher was Madeleine Pollard, and our studio manager was David Stevens. Monica Houseview will return on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>